Welcome to Holding Center, a podcast created to help you own and hold center stage, not only on show day, but also in your life. I'm your host, Ashley Markham, owner of Myo Strength, and joined with me is my co-host, Ashley Spoker, owner of B&B Fit. Let's hold center. Yo, Ash, just kidding. She's not here. <laughs> it's just me. It's me, but I am actually uh, joined by a special guest today. I am very, very excited. Um, for those of you who live under a rock, um, I'm joined by a special guest, um, Roderick Chavez. Am I saying the last name correctly? Sure. It's, it, it's, the, it's the big no. <laughs> the proper pronunciation, so sure. Fuck. I butchered Alex's last name. I butchered your last name. I tried, man. I at least get points for effort. <laughs> no, but how are you doing this morning, sir? I am well. Um, I, thank you for having me. Uh, I Always interested to, I actually, no, I'm telling you a blatant lie. Not always. I'm occasionally <laughs> interested in going outside of my sphere and talking to a new face and, and a new crowd. And um, probably, and I'm not sure if this is a version of sexism or not, but I, I actually um, committed to this most uh, most uh, because I always enjoy, or at least I almost always enjoy, uh, a female-centric uh, questions and conversation. Uh, I think it's one of the more interesting areas, um, and I don't even mean that in a childish way. I mean that in a, you know, a, a, an athletic professional sort of way, and also one of the most um, just really under- underexploited, underspoke about, um, under, you know, just covered. So I, I thought as soon as I heard, I heard a female centric podcast, I was like, sure, I'll do that. No, I appreciate it. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, the PED use and stuff like that's always kind of like hush hush nowadays, but especially with the female population, like I'm very open now about my drug use because like, I think it's important to not necessarily normalize it because that's not the point, but to be honest about it. Like I'm really big about honesty and being realistic and being practical. And so it's like, I'm, you know, no longer a natural athlete. Like I'm enhanced. I am I'm on TRT. Like that's just the nature of the beast. This is how I've chosen to live my life. And, you know, I think it's really good to open up the conversation, especially with how intelligent you are about, you know, um, when it comes to physiology, chemistry, and biology. So I wanted to have you on to kind of talk about that stuff, but also, you know, get into like the nitty gritty of our topic. But with that being said, like kind of give a little bit of a background as to like who the fuck you are and why you're mm. the beast fucking knees. <laughs> well, I can't swear that I'm, I'm anyone and I'm certainly not sure I'm that person, but um, <laughs> although I just spend a lot of time in Britain and that is a phrase, a phrasing I've heard before. So fair, fair play. Um, <laughs> As you said, the name is Broderick Chavez. I typically go by B. Chavez, uh, not because I love diminutives, but because people typically get a bit tongue-tied with my first name. So I, I go to—I actually take that small effort to streamline their uh, efforts. Uh, so anyway, uh, B. Chavez, I own and operate um, Evil Genius Sports Performance, aka Team Evil GSP, which, by the way, is where we're at across the internet, the web domain, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff is Team Evil GSP. Um, just a little tip I'll pass on because it was great for me. Uh, I know an awful lot about what I do, but I know nothing about business and nothing about social media. And I was given some amazing advice. So anyone out there listening, try and take this advice. Once you pick a name, follow that branding through everything. Mm. 
that way you're not a bunch of things in a bunch of places. If you're one thing, it's like Coca-Cola. Everywhere you go, yes, for Coca-Cola, you know what you're going to fucking get. I have worked very hard to create that. So wherever you go, if you find Team Evil GSP, you'll get this, like it or not. So anyway, I am I am me. I own and operate Team Evil GSP. I have a member's website. Um, actually, I hate that when I say I. It actually is, at this point in, the, in its reality, a team, although I'm sure you're looking for dirt on me. But uh, <laughs> the, the member site is, in fact, a team. There's multiple of us. Uh, contributing both to the infrastructure of the site and the actual content. Uh, I never wanted to be, uh, I, I hate the word, like, for instance, the guru. I don't want mm -hmm. to be it. I want to be part of the conversation, maybe even lead the conversation, but I want, I don't, I want it to be a conversation and uh, not one of these conversations where I'm just talking to my fucking self. Like mm -hmm. I find many in this industry. So anyway, um, I have been at this forever. I am 51 years old. Um, a little bit on the, I'll give you a little update of the last 10 years last, but historically I was a reasonably passable teenage bodybuilder, um, was, I don't say so good, but I was, um, prodigal in a, in a way and was recognized by some very high level people in the industry, kind of taken under their wing. And uh, I was certainly wasn't given anything other than opportunity i was given the opportunity mm. to be around really high level people um it wasn't a vehicle for you know me suddenly winning national level shows or anything uh, although i think it might have could have been but it wasn't used that way it was just um used to immerse myself in the 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 back side of the industry i actually got to see bodybuilding powerlifting olympic lifting strongman from both a, an athlete's perspective and from an organizer's and intellects, a coach's, etc. And so I got this very unique path led by some very, very high level people. I don't like to name drop, but uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield would be one. Um, I sure. live in Delaware. At the, my childhood, I lived in Pennsylvania, which was very close to him. I'm spouting off locations for that reason. Uh, Fred was in uh, the Baltimore, Washington area, so it was relatively close. And um, the the immersion of really good athletes, but also really good intellects led me down a path a little bit more scholastic and intellectual than probably I would have taken otherwise. Uh, wound up in university. In university, I fell into a very unique uh, position yet again. Um, I wonder if these things are luck or providence or just hard work. I don't know. But I fell into this position where I was given reasonably broad responsibilities and access to the 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 human performance lab which put me right on the edge between on one side was the professors the organizers the even the lab and medical companies the the grand you know purveyors all those people and then on the other side were the actual athletes so i wound up being sort of a conduit between i could speak to athletes I could speak pro and understand what the athletes were asking. And I could translate that into intellectual problem that the, you know, the, the intellects could deal with. And so I wound up being sort of this Rosetta stone, which gave me uh, one, a, a deep value. And when you have value, then you have immersion. So <laughs> I was very much immersed in the coaching of the football team, the track and field team, et cetera. And it, I, I just, even though I went to university for a degree in biology, I actually really wound up getting a degree in coaching. Quite, quite literally, that was the thing I took away. 
Uh, and it was just sort of magical. It was a very unique situation. So on one sphere, I had this, you know, pro bodybuilding, pro powerlifting connection. And then on this other level, I had this connection to, you know, national and international field sports. Uh, and then also had a reasonably deep connection with a few key professors. So it just led me down a kind of unique road. Uh, I was all this while I myself was an athlete, decent one, uh, decent bodybuilder, decent powerlifter, or rather decent strongman, very good powerlifter. And that took me to the basically the pinnacles of the world in powerlifting, um, set some squat and uh, bench press records are actually still in the mix today to up 20 or something. Uh, I don't even know. I don't track it, but it, none, nonetheless. Uh, and then this all kind of comes to crescendo um, about 10 years ago. Uh, December 9th, 2013, I was in, involved in a very serious accident, which literally, not a figuratively, literally left me crippled. Uh, I spent nine months in a wheelchair. And during that period of time, I, one, had to get you know healthy enough to fucking survive the thing. And two, it literally changed my world. I could no longer make a living from athletics because I was fucking crippled. So I had to really spend some time and effort and, and again, some luck uh, and kind of originally just kind of did some podcasting to fill my time. You sit in a wheelchair, you got a lot of time. And yeah. it made me aware that I was pretty good at it. I could speak, I could you know organize my thoughts and deliver my thoughts. And it just sort of led me down a, more, I, I don't even want to say scholastic, but sort of more of a lecturer's route yeah. simply because the athletic side had been stripped away to a, to a high degree. Uh, it turns out just not to overly, you know, uh, you know martyr myself. Uh, yeah. It turns out my, I recovered better from my injuries than was anticipated. I was told in the emergency room, like, Hey, you'll probably never walk again. Um, so that was sort of the expectation going into it. And, you know, now I can squat and deadlift and I'm functional. I'm certainly only a shadow of who I once was, but nonetheless. So that's that's kind of the the, the the grand career arc I took. It was from, you know, child prodigy to, you know, scholastic survivor to, you know, international caliber athlete to wheelchair to, you know, sort of more of a sit and speak kind of role. So that's where I'm at now. Um I don't, I don't know if that's what you wanted, but that's a, a quick arc of who and how I got here. No, that's incredible. I actually didn't know um, that part of your story because on all of the podcasts, and for those that don't know, it's like I treat his member's site um, kind of like, you know, podcasts and stuff like that when I'm walking in the morning. And I always knew about like your Christmas day story about mm -hmm. like getting to the gym at 10 years old, you know, squatting for the first time ever. And what was it? Fucking a bovine like cattle syringe yeah, was hanging up yeah. a poster. Like that's what I knew about you. I didn't know yeah. the in between. Yeah, that's well, okay. Well, I, I I intentionally left that out because that part's you know usually a bit uh, over the top for m most people. But yes, that that is true. My not only you know, was I a little bit of a child prodigy. Probably the reason I was a child prodigy is quite literally I was thrown in at the very deep end. No, no, no uh, you know, no exaggeration. Um, Almost to the point of probably, I don't want to say criminal, but you you could probably almost frame it that way. It was it was a very shocking immersion and just a quirk of my psyche, a quirk of my spite and determination, um, and my actual genuine you know realization that I had a love for what I was doing. Um, <laughs> kind of all coalesced, and I you know I I went down probably the hardest path, but it was uh, almost certainly the most fun. 
Absolutely. No, I'm a very intense female. So there's nothing that you can say that's going to offend me. Like I'm a real ass bitch. Like there's nothing that you can say that I'm going to take offense to. So you just be yourself. And I promise you, like the reason why I wanted to have you on is because your fucking personality. Like, yes, you're, you're a fucking evil genius, but like, you're also just fucking funny. Like I'm not, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure quite if you, uh, uh, realize the comparative line you've just gotten in because my wife um, who I do mention on the podcast and stuff rather a lot but uh, my wife was a prison guard for 10 years gen pop open floor prison guard for 10 years so j- just so you know what I'm accustomed to dealing with just you know you might want to you might want to cinch up your belt that's right oh that's awesome that's awesome but yeah let's kind of dive into sure. to our topic a little bit so you know, you did a really awesome job kind of explaining the sing-song dance between IGF-1 and growth hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people just think that they can take IGF-1 and then they're going to blow up. And mm-hmm. they take it and they kind of don't. So kind of, can you take your time and kind of take us through the, the movie setting, the movie scene between yep. the relationship of IGF-1 and really the importance of growth hormone that people need to understand yep. if they're going to use this compound? Yeah. And before I do that, and I'm, by the way, I'm very notorious for this is answer some other question before I answer that one. Uh, (laughs) This isn't really going to be an answer to that question, but what I'm going to do is elucidate something. Invariably, no matter what the thing is, in this case, we're going to talk about IGF-1, but it could be anything. It could be this secret steroid. It could be, you know, uh, injectable carnitine. It could be anything (laughs) you find. There you are. Oh, there you're not. There you are. What you find is there's always some outlier that got amazing results. And there's always some outlier that got very, very bad results. So when you go down the IGF-1 conversation, there'll always be those three or four people, you know, on Reddit or in a forum or whatever. They're like, it changed my life. I'm a different person. Like, it's amazing. I grew a, I grew a fucking tail. You know what? It's all this stuff. <laughs> the, the thing that you should take away from that is not this oh, you know, it kind of works for some and work, doesn't work for others. Or What you should really take away from that is we're all the same species. There is something about them or what they were doing in total conditions that made it work. So then when you start to look at it in that lens and you take the, the winners and the losers and you sort of put them in piles and then you start to look at what do they have in common with one another and what do they not have in common across the divide, you start to see a pattern. I'll leave that conversation there just for as a, a way of thinking. And then I'll come back to it at the very end, explain probably why one group got the results and one didn't. So with that idea that something separates these two groups then let's go back and look at growth hormone let's let's actually look at the mechanisms and the pathways which i think is what you were really shooting for right um growth hormone in a in a very there is first of all there is a difference between childhood development and adult uh exposure so momentarily let's skip over the childhood development part the actions of growth hormone that actually cause the, the, the lengthening of long bones, the development of organ tissue, those sorts of things, they are actually slightly different because, again, the environment of childhood is a little bit different. The architecture of bones and joints and even to some degree soft tissue is not sort of finalized and it's malleable. So growth hormone can do things in places at degrees that it otherwise can't do in a, in a you know in an adult Um Point of fact, 
uh, acromegalia, the bone growth, the change of your know, face, the heightening, those sort of things. Very, very hard to achieve in an adult. It's not impossible. Well, boy, it's hard to achieve in an adult. Sure. Whereas in a child, a, a, an IU of growth hormone, and they, they literally spurt. So you, it gives you an idea how malleable the childhood uh, environment is and how relatively rigid the adult environment is. Okay. So on a level in adults, you could think of growth hormone as actually a pro drug, like the old pro hormones. It isn't the actual thing. It, your body needs to convert it into the active thing, like T4 becoming T3, like bound testosterone becoming unbound to act. It's there, but it's not active in that format. To say that growth hormone is not active is a little unfair, but most people dial into that word growth. When they hear growth, they immediately think muscles are going to be, it's, it's a muscle <clears throat> hormone. When you're thinking of it that way, its effects are very pro drug. Okay. So what happens is um, whether you make it naturally because of the diurnal uh, tick of time, or you administer a secretagogue like, you know, ipamorelin, or you just take a goddamn shot of growth hormone. Either way, growth hormone enters your bloodstream. Growth hormone is a hormone, but not the hormone that most people would think, that most people say hormone, they're thinking sex hormone, uh, testosterone, estrogen, uh, corticosteroids, you know, prolactin progesterone uh etc cortisol cortisol uh, those are all patterned off of cholesterol growth hormone is a protein it is what's called a polypeptide which is just fancy talk for string of amino acids okay so gro growth hormone is a 191 series of amino acids i don't rattle off the 191 to you know sound extra clever it's to illustrate something imagine if you were playing Scrabble and you were able to spell a word with 191 letters, which by the way, isn't actually a terribly bad analogy because there are in fact 20 something amino acids in human biology and there's 20 something letters in the uh, English alphabet. It's actually a surprisingly good analogy. So imagine if you could spell a coherent word with 191 letters, okay? As absurd as that is, think of it, you a long letter. Think how often you could go along and randomly find another word embedded in that word. Just every so often you go, oh, there's, there's me. They just happen to be side by side. So that's a word. So the point is there's lots of fractions or other words hiding in this really long word. It's actually the same reason humans have a love affair with petroleum. It's not because we have a love affair with petroleum. It's because the earth has loads and loads of time and energy to create this very large complex molecule that we can then chop up into the pieces we want. It's energy expensive to make little pieces big, to put something together takes lots of energy, but to take something apart takes significantly less energy. So the earth packs all this energy into this large molecule, then we clip it up to you know run our airplanes and cars and make plastics and things. That's essentially what's going on here. Growth hormone is this very large, expensive, petroleum-like thing, it circulates. It doesn't really do much of anything. More on that in a second, because that's not actually true. But it, it, for this part of the conversation, it's true. It circulates in the bloodstream like anything that you inject ultimately does. When it gets to the liver, and pause from this conversation, most people, most um, 
lay people. Think of the liver as some sort of, it's a filter. It's the thing that takes drugs and alcohol out of your blood. That's about 2% of what it fucking does. The liver is actually, in a sense, almost the brain of the body. The brain is the brain of a person, but the liver is very much the brain of the body. The liver makes all the complicated decisions. The liver turns all of the delicate dials. And so when this large, complicated molecule makes it to the liver, the liver then does some sort of equation that we only sort of understand. Honestly, I am very comfortable saying that. I am one of the foremost experts on this topic, and I can tell you with a straight face, there's some shit happening behind a wall that we can't see. We don't know what's going on. We have some good guesses, and we kind of know how to nudge it along, but we don't really understand. But behind that wall, that inside that box we can't see, the liver somehow measures or is at least aware of estrogen, testosterone, thyroid, insulin, total calories, total inflammation, probably some other shit we're not even taking into into account. It puts all those numbers, all those values into an equation, generates an answer that says, I am healthy enough and comfortable enough to turn this much growth hormone into this much, and wait for it, growth factors, not just IGF-1. People have locked in. IGF-1 is the one that's the one that makes muscles grow. That's the one. There's no exaggeration. There's about a hundred that come out the back of the liver. IGF-1 is the predominant, but there's IGF-2, there's MGF, there's a a necrotic tumor factor. There's all these things that come out the back of the liver. And how much of each one your body makes is based on some condition that honestly you're probably not even aware of. So that's roughly the series of events. Now, at the beginning, I said growth hormone doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really do anything directly in terms of raising IGF-1 or raising immediate growth, but it does do a whole bunch of shit but it's signaling and preparatory i will explain muscle is a you know a surface you go to the store and look at a roast you're looking at the surface of meat that is what's going on in your body there's a surface fucking meat okay and there's also blood flow through the meat so there's you know the ability to get signals from the outside in and to some degree from the inside out in terms of that hormone could travel through the blood, enter some other place in the muscle and diffuse through. Um, When the full 191 amino acid polypeptide known as growth hormone, or as it was when I went to fucking school, they changed all the names, by the way, uh, it was somatropic hormone. Yeah, that's what I learned in school. Yeah. So the full somatropic hormone signals for things like myonuclear donation and the upregulation of satellite cells. Clever, sciencey words to make you look really smart. What it amounts to is when on the surface of muscle, if you dialed in close enough with a microscope, you see these little frays. They're just little, even on a non-trained healthy muscle, you see these little frays sticking up. Those little frays are the seed cells that will eventually grow into the replacement cells to fix muscle damage, okay? And they sort of lay down, like if you walk on carpet, it mats down. If So they're matted down. Under the influence of the full 191, they perk up, or what's called upregulate. So for a narrow window of time, and that is key here, for a narrow window of time, they are upregulated for a few hours before they fall back down to their na- native state. So you administer growth hormone, 
it tells those satellite and stem cells to kind of perk up and look for stimulation, preparatory. Now, during that same window of time, this hormone circulating everywhere, always remember your bloodstream goes everywhere. Even if you're administering a drug to fix your sore elbow, remember, it's going everywhere. It's in your fucking big toe. It's on the top of your head. It's everywhere. If you have blood there, it got there. It may not have a button to push once it gets there, but it still goes there. That's important. And people forget that. Okay. So this drug goes everywhere. One of the everywheres it gets to is your pancreas. And when it gets to your pancreas, it actually signals the pancreas to do some things like produce lipase and glucagon. Okay. Lipase, anything with ACE at the end is an is an enzyme. It is the enzyme. Basically think of it as, um, well, it, it, it's the enzyme that tells your fat cells that it's a good idea to release some fat into the bloodstream. Okay. So for a short period of time, you now have fat cells donating fat to the bloodstream. Once again, people immediately look at that as like, well, that, that's, you know, I should do cardio. That's a, you know, that's a dieting wonder perhaps, but more importantly, your body has no idea you're about to lift weights. Your body only knows that there is growth hormone loose and growth is expensive energetically. So it's a good idea to interject some energy. So it takes some energy that you have stored in your big fat ass, puts it into the bloodstream to later power whatever this growth is going to be. The same thing applies to glucagon. This Growth hormone stimulates the pancreas to release glucagon. Glucagon is a hormone that actually convinces mostly liver cells to release glucose into the bloodstream. Once again, creating more momentary free available energy. And another exciting thing is as glucose is dumped into the bloodstream, blood sugar values go up because glucose is sugar. So blood sugar or blood glucose, those are essentially synonyms, by the way, folks, as blood glucose goes up, the pancreas then secondarily is like, shit, there's an inflow of energy. We better release some insulin. So now for a very narrow moment of time, you have growth hormone in the bloodstream. You have fat in the bloodstream. You have glucose in the bloodstream and you have insulin in the bloodstream. Now, coincidentally, all of those things get calculated in that calculus that the liver does, and those things are at elevated values. You momentarily have more glucose, more fat, and more insulin to factor into that equation, which we now realize means more effective muscle building growth factors on the back end. So right away, we should get out our little notebooks and go, it looks like fat, glucose, and insulin relative to this conversation. As they go up, apparently the body on its own, without any gurus or sciencey bullshit, just the body alone is comfortable doing that to get an, an ideal outcome or a, or a, 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 ideal is probably not the right word, but a, a, a superior outcome. And coincidentally, through other researches, we've realized that in a very low carb environment, where both calories and glucose, and therefore insulin are relatively low, we know that the output of IGF-1 is truncated. Yes, boys and girls, in a keto environment, your growth hormone makes less IGF-1. Not immediately a deal breaker, not immediately like that's the death nail, but it's a relevant consideration. 
we have enough people doing low carb, low calorie diets that we can start to measure things. We get it. And again, we just put it in a pile. That's an interesting pile. Those people have lower IGF-1. And then we start to look why. And then we realize why is probably because of this calorie carbohydrate scenario. So then we can start to backward engineer that. We go, apparently more calories, carbohydrates, and insulin seems to generate a better outcome. So we can, now we're starting just from understanding this chain of events, we're starting to see sort of the major levers that we can pull moving forward. So the liver does this calculation, goes through in, metaphorically with a pair of scissors and clips out the things that we want. It goes to the growth hormone and goes, well, that we'll clip that out. And that's that 171, 191 growth fa uh, uh, fa fragment. That'll go off and do something. Here's IGF-1, here's IGF-2, there's MGF, there's all these different things. And they come out the back of the liver and again, travel through the bloodstream to everywhere <laughs> where there is, people have this um, sort of sing-song um, you know, mindset where they talk about drugs as a lock and key. It's really not a very good analogy. I mean, on a fun to fucking mental level, yes, there's a key and it only goes in so many locks and it turns it and, you know, it starts up and, you know, zooms away. Or I don't know what the fuck people think, but that's a very, very childlike scenario. I would suggest you think maybe more like Lego. Imagine, um, you know, a, a surface of Lego bombs and an assortment of different size Legos and they can click into a socket. And if you think maybe each one of those bumps rec represents some different characteristics of the thing, that's why you could take the spot that's supposed to be testosterone, you could click primaballin in it. It doesn't work just like testosterone because it's only activating some of the bumps, mm -hmm. if you will. It, not a per again, not a perfect analogy, but you're trying to turn biology into you know a simple you know child's toy. Not, not as easy as it sounds. But anyway. So then these growth factors go out the back of the body. Not every tissue has the socket for that Lego. So IGF-1 might go around and keep trying to click into something in the brain and it just won't because there's no space for it. So it moves on and then it finds a damaged muscle cell and lo and behold, clicks right in, activates whatever it activates in that spot. So that just kind of gives you an idea how that these things are made in the liver released they go everywhere and then they really only act in a place where they're basically allowed to mm -hmm. that's and again that's not perfect because some drugs do kind of create nefarious fuckery off in corners when you're not looking um they, they really do but in in a general sense that's the scenario so now you've got this thumbnail sketch the one thing i didn't really enter into this is the timings of natural physiology and natural physiology is kind of a shady word to use both in this context and in any context that has to do with bodybuilding, weightlifting, powerlifting, et cetera, weight training, because quite literally, even in the absence of drugs, that's not really a natural affair. That's a, that's a very chosen behavior. You can go to all the zoos in all the world and you'll never see, you know, animals you know, off doing fucking you know exercise they don't do that so even the most naturalist drug-free individual still really engaging in relatively unnatural events so it's a little bit of a shady conversation and i i tend to get a little annoyed with the natural crowd just because i, I don't think they actually really understand that word as well as they want to um no, i'm not serious i find that a little annoying 
Um, I, I wish I could like shake a magic wand and change language and the whole natural, first of all, natty, anytime you abbreviate something into a faggoty little diminutive, you, you really need to die. Like that's just fucking awful. But secondly, no, I agree. Oh my if God. We could take the, if we could take the natural bodybuilding and really just nomenclate it as you drug free or steroid free or whatever the thing they think is the fucking devil you know, if we could just make it that it would be a little more honest because this idea of natural bodybuilding is like no that's not a nat you never see that in nature that's not a nature thing um so anyway a little i divert off the tracks there a little bit but that does annoy me to a high degree so that's roughly the thumbnail what i didn't add is the timing and again we're momentarily going to talk about only adults this is a very interesting concept in developmental childhood development and how growth hormone shapes the environment that ultimately becomes an adult. That's very interesting, but it's also very much a different conversation because quite literally a large portion of it does not apply. So in adults, growth hormone is really only released based on behavior. What I mean by that is you must do something. There's some action you take voluntarily or involuntarily that initiates these cascades. One of the most prominent in non-athletic, just normal humans is sleep. It is a major biological event. A whole bunch of processes shift. So nature has recognized that that is a time that is essentially um, available. Insofar as because you're going to go to sleep, you're not engaged in fuckery. I know that sounds really silly, but it's true. The body can set a series of dominoes in position, tip them over, and you're not going to be doing cartwheels to fuck up the game. So as you go to sleep, your body releases an amount of growth hormone, and it does that whole cascade. It goes out and stimulates satellite cells and it talks to the pancreas and it releases you know, uh, fat and, and sugar and your blood sugar goes up and then it raises insulin. Now imagine if you were awake and you could do, I don't know, fasted morning cardio at that window. Now you're suddenly whittling away that elevated blood sugar. It's going to change the inputs into your equation. Let's say you're awake and you're depressed and you eat a box of cookies. That's going to influence your blood sugar and influence insulin. And that's going to change the inputs to the equation. So the, the, the moral of this story is your body wants a certain outcome. So it does it essentially behind your back when you can't fuck with it. Seriously. Yep. And that then generates the outcomes that your body wants. And by saying what it wants, I sometimes catch myself intimating sort of that the, the body thinks that it has some desires of its own. It does not. But what it does have is a certain amount of programming. And one of the major programming dictums is survival and repair. So it's trying to create an environment that meets that dictum. So the growth hormone release you get is largely intended or utilized for the purpose of momentary repair and recovery. That should sound very relevant to an athlete. Okay. All day long, you just go about your all day long things. You damage cells and strain muscles and do things. Then you go to bed and your body's job is to try and repair that and get you ready for another day of survival. Okay. So now we've start to get this shape of the day where we have this spike of growth hormone as we're going to sleep with the belief that 60 to 90 minutes after we are actually asleep, 
that this whole growth hormone cascade will take place and do its magic. So now secondarily, you can get a release of growth hormone from exercise if you actually engage in exercise or interestingly, um, a podcast of this nature might get a chuckle out of this sex. Your body actually has a very hard time telling the difference between exercise and sex because quite literally they are the same thing. It's a, it's, it's a physical event that you have a high level of arousal, a high level of engagement. You burn some calories. It, literally, sex is exercise. So exercise, sex, a couple other things cause these. I don't like the word, but let's use spike. It's an industry word that I would like to see die because it's not really accurate. It's a cascade. If it was just a spike, that would be, oh, you just run up, give them a shot. It goes up and everything magic happens. And unfortunately, that's not how it is. It initiates a cascade. So that's roughly the scenario. So now with that scenario, we can then begin to look at a couple of very base things. One, there is a timeline from the initiation of this to the actual growth factors leave the liver and find target tissue seems to be time delineated in this fashion about based on dose, body weight, to some degree fitness, to some degree hydration, Roughly speaking, you inject growth hormone and something in the order of 60 to 90 minutes, it's at the liver. That We're now at the equation part. And something in the 90 to 120 minute, we have growth factors finding target tissue. And that seems to last about two hours. So we have on a, on a bell curve, we have about a four hour from injection or manufacture to this process has petered out. Okay. So that now we have that. So if you start to realize, like, this is a four-hour adventure, this idea of taking growth hormone like every hour, well, that kind of goes out the window. If it's a four-hour process, you wouldn't think you'd want to do it much more than every four hours at best. And that's giving your body no real room or rest for recovery, rebound, reset, any whatever languages you want to put in there. So it starts to become pretty obvious that probably twice a day is about your maximum rational application of growth hormone. More of that because we might be able to come back and intercede with not growth hormone to affect the growth hormone. So now we probably have this, um, you know, twice a day administration at maximum. There is an argument that I don't subscribe to, but nonetheless, a rational argument. I love rational arguments. It's always nice to hear somebody frame something that makes sense. And one of the makes sense against my argument would be you get a natural release at bedtime. Maybe that's not the time to take exogenous growth hormone because you're overwhelming your natural production. Why give away that natural bolus? That would be the argument. And that is sensible. You're, you, you can go through the logic and go, well, yeah, my body is going to make it then. So maybe I'll just let my body do that and I'll administer it some other time. That's rational. And I would even say if maybe you were on a phenomenally tight budget, that might have some extra utility. But my argument would be that is, in fact, the perfect time to take it because about a million years of Pythican evolution has called out that time in your diurnal behavior. That's the window when it's most susceptible to engaging this process. So to me, that's the perfect time to augment the process. If the body's already looking for it, I'm going to show it full frontal nude. Like if you're if you're looking, I'm going to show you. 
So that's my thinking is I would rather run with the pre-existing framework than try and preserve that weak but real and then jam some effective framework in some other time frame. So, so now I would say your major administrative bolus for growth would be pre-bed. More on that in a minute when we talk about ways you might use these peptides, growth hormones specifically, for not growth. And that's a very interesting conversation. So for growth, pre-bed, you're going to get essentially the, the, the greasiest gears in this process. The liver is going to do its most favorable calculation, all of that. As long as we go back, male or female, and look at the inputs into that equation. So what that is roughly telling us is that is a time pre-bed when we want a large amount of androgens, estrogen, those probably aren't proximal. Those are probably things we're taking you know, daily, weekly as part of some other course. But nonetheless, we want the presence of those. We want a presence of calories, meals somewhere in that two-hour pre-bed window. And by the way, people get really wound up about they, they think that like calories are literally like they, they count only when they cross your fucking teeth. The, the reality is, you know, you put a couple hundred calories in here. It's a 24 hour ride from pie hole to asshole. Okay. So this, this like fucking incredibly tight timing, horseshit, unless you're, you know, drinking it or taking it IV horseshit. So a meal somewhere in the two hour pre-bed range, milk all the way up to right before bed. This is going to raise now. So now we have androgens in play. Because we have androgen, we probably have some estrogen. Now we have calories. Calories are going to then generate a release of insulin. Now we have major players in women predominantly, and then men, when they cross a certain body weight, uh, thyroid really becomes a pivotal factor. I say women because women are notoriously the demographic that will have low thyroid values just out of the gate, especially as they approach 40 years old. Literally, you know, you see these charts of men with you know, like the incidence of, of low T as they age and literally they get 40, it, it drops. Well, mm -hmm. if you take that same chart and just put women's thyroid, they look identical. It's just literally, it limps down about 38 and then at 40, just even if they're healthy. So when you're dieting, doing all these things, that's probably a, a suspicious conversation. So thyroid is usually the pivot. And then in men, um, I would actually be guilty of this. A lot of people maybe don't realize this, but I am thyroid dependent. Um, in a sense, by the way, I'm also very comfortable admitting my errors. In a sense, probably because I was overzealous at being good. Um, I had then and kind of still do have this mantra that less drugs is better. Whenever possible, don't take a drug, which sounds funny for the drug guy, but really that is my underlying premise is whenever possible, don't add a drug. And I did that and I lived that. And it turns out in the realm of thyroid, I probably made an error. As my body weight got higher and higher in my 20s and somewhere in my mid-20s till my mid-30s, my body weight was literally 100 pounds higher than it would have been without training in pharmacology. And unfortunately, my thyroid was then tasked to supplying a quantity of thyroid to a body that was so much bigger than it was meant for. So it was like having a little teeny fuel pump on a giant tractor trailer and it just fucking wore out. So 
it, it is very reasonable to argue, and I'm not saying this to like convince everybody to run out and start taking prescription thyroid. I'm just pointing out how even the, the smartest guy in a room can shit the bed occasionally. This guy. Um, it's very arguable that if I had supplemented some of my larger dosing windows with thyroid, it would have relieved the burden on my thyroid and probably not prevented the problem, but probably prolonged it. And maybe not had me come down thyroid dependent until my mid forties instead of my mid thirties. So just an interesting thing, but it's also just kind of relevant as how that equation that your liver deals with is real. And you really have to think about the inputs, where they're coming from, whether you're helping or hindering them to kind of balance this equation that we don't even really understand. Okay, so now you've got this environment. Now there's a little bit to the story that I did not enter into that original thumbnail. That original thumbnail is injection of growth hormone to the release of growth factors. Now's where the interesting part comes in. And I think the part that you're digging at, okay. Every hormone, by and large, every hormone in your body, at least every important one, has a storage mechanism. You might hear about a binding globulin. People talk about SHBG, for instance, sex hormone binding globulin. And they view it as this evil thing. It's stealing my testosterone. It's binding up my testosterone. What they don't realize is on a genetic level, Evolution has decided that testosterone and some other key things, cholesterol, for instance, is so valuable that there's a recycle mechanism in play or a conservation mechanism in play. So your body developed this thing called a binding protein so that when your body releases hormones and it does so in pulses, no hormone is just trickled out in a drop, whether it's testosterone or estrogen or thyroid. It's not just this one, you know, one milligram an hour over the course. It's always in a pulse. It, hormone production is essentially a binary. It's on or it's off. So this whole process, you get a wash of IGF-1 in a two to four hour window and then no more. So what you wind up with is more than is momentarily necessary. That of the amount that's produced, some finds target tissue, damaged muscles, and et cetera, does its thing. Some of it just kind of wanders around looking, traveling through the bloodstream, looking for that. Some of that is just wasted. It's just metabolized, broken down into the root amino acids and used for energy or some other purpose. And some of it finds the binding globulin, which is essentially to the hormone, if you, if you were thinking about this from the perspective of the hormone, that's that's score. It doesn't know that it didn't get to target tissue. It's essentially a fox target tissue. So it binds up to that thinking like it's scored and it's in muscle. doesn't know that it's not. It tumbles around in the bloodstream and all tissue, whether it's a binding globulin, a heart cell, a brain cell, or a hair cell has a lifespan. So it lives its lifespan, something that's called PTOR, protein turnover rate, and then it dies. When that binding globulin proteins die, it then releases the thing. So that IGF-1, that testosterone, that estrogen, it wasn't wasted. It was conserved to then be released at a later date. So now with that, you've got this cycle that produces a wash of IGF-1. Some works momentarily. Some gets bound up and some gets wasted. So if you run this cycle regularly enough in sufficient volume, what you get is a slow saturation 
of the binding globulin, much like the hot summer sun slowly evaporating some water up into the clouds, which is the binding globulin. And if the clouds get sufficiently saturated, what happens? You start to get rain. So if you run this process long enough, at a sufficient enough volume, you saturate that binding globulin. And now even in between the pulses, the every 12 hour pulse that you're generating, you get a steady rain, slow, soft spring, growth friendly rain of IGF-1. So now the stage is truly set. It's not about the individual rotation of the cycle, as I often preach. It's about running enough of these cycles to a, a new destination. And that new destination is this weather pattern where you constantly have saturated clouds, gently raining growth onto this target tissue all the time. Now, the reason I go through all of this is because every single hormone has its own binding protein, growth hormone itself and insulin itself, okay? The reason I mentioned names were changed Originally, growth hormone was referenced as somatropic hormone, and IGF-1 was referenced as somatomedin C. It's been renomenclated to IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor. And there's a confusion. People are of the belief that it's been renamed because it's like insulin. It is a little like insulin, but that's actually not why the renaming took place. The renaming took place because it shares the same binding protein as insulin. So what we find is part of that equation of the body wants to see glucose and insulin is because that means there's an upregulation of insulin binding proteins that will later be utilized to bind not insulin, perhaps, but not entirely, IGF-1. So each stage of this equation is in fact like a domino falling. And if any domino doesn't fall, the next one doesn't work. So for instance, if you ran this process without sufficient carbohydrates, you would have insufficient insulin that would generate insufficient binding proteins, which would then mean more of your momentary IGF-1 is wasted, not conserved. So every step is predicated on the step before it. And that is one of the reasons why I think what you're ultimately getting at is the, why don't I just take IGF-1? Yes, IGF-1 is the active compound, but it is so short acting that if you do not have sufficient binding proteins from running that whole complicated process, not once, but a hundred times to generate this large volume of binding proteins, any IGF-1 you throw in there is going to be very, very transient. You got a 20 or 30 minute window of it, maybe scrambling around finding some target tissue and then the rest being wasted. The way we truly get it to work is create this environment through all of that systematic behavior to generate that conservation mechanism it will catch, conserve, and then later rain down our IGF-1. Is that mm -hmm. su sufficiently long-winded to get us to that part, part of the story? No, I love it. And I love that you also talked about... Hey guys, thanks so much for sticking with us this long. If you're here at the end of the podcast, Ashley and Bartrick go on for another hour or so. So I'm going to cut this one here. And uh, for anyone who's interested, we'll issue out a follow-up next week. So stay tuned for the end of the story.